You are tuning into Latino Politics and News with Tony Diaz on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston, Texas. The era of Hispandering is over. Thanks for tuning into Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. Today, we're bringing you a broadcast that is full of different views that will catch you up on what's going on, not just in the community, but also across the professional and intellectual realms as well. Because, hey, we know they all go together. At the talk of the show, we're going to visit with Nori Angel, who makes history as the first Latina executive director of the prestigious American Leadership Forum, of which I'm proud to be an alum. And we're going to find out what some of her mandates are and how you can get involved in this organization as well. We also have some really great news. We can tell you that the ethnic studies bill that Cristina Morales, State Representative Cristina Morales, has presented now has a number. That is Texasize History House Bill Number 1504-1504. And you can also find out more information at texasizedhistory.com. We're going to share her op-ed to catch you up to speed on how that's going, and we're going to keep informing you about that as it continues. Also going to share with you one of my essays about the term Latinx because it's very, very complicated. (laughs) And people keep using that as clickbait. We give you a more profound view on that every week, and today a little bit of a highlight on that. And then we're going to close, besides a lot of great music in the middle, with Alfredo Corchado. And he's going to read his New York Times essay that came out during the Trump administration, but I think still has really powerful points about immigration. Because as you recall, farm workers were considered essential workers at that time. And this is important because it shows that Depending on the administration, here are workers who are family members who are on one hand vilified in some ways and on the other hand clearly needed. We look forward to a change in their status and the way they are treated in this nation. want to thank the folks who bring the show to you. Rodrigo Bravo mixes our programs and helps us make sure that we really come across clearly across 100,000 watts in the fourth largest city in America. We have some new volunteers as well. Our intern, Gabriela Vasquez, who is helping us with a lot of the design issues and also will be helping us line up interviews. And Nathan Noble, who will be helping us as well, especially with social media. And of course, we want to thank the folks that have been here from the beginning, Leti Lopez curating music for us, Roxana Guzman helping us get the word out visually. This is Tony Diaz. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please visit kpft.org and click on the donate button to make a pledge in the name of Latino Politics and News so we can keep informing the community our terms on our terms. Also find out how you might Design the logo for KPFT. Limited time, this is open. Would love for one of our listeners to be the progenitor of the new KPFT look. Stay tuned and best of luck.
You're tuning in to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. Today, we're visiting with a Latina who is making history as the first Latina executive director for the famous American Leadership Forum. Of course, she's also a dear friend of mine, so I'm very happy to get to touch bases with her, but also congratulate her on this milestone for the organization. They're lucky to have you. Please welcome to the airwaves, Nori Angel. Great to talk to you. Likewise, Tony. Good to be with you this morning, this afternoon. And of course, I want to make sure that I have this right. I want to make sure that this is a historical milestone. So is it the case that you're the first Latina as executive director of the American Leadership Forum? It is. We have been around nearly 40 years, and I am the first person of color who steps into this role. That's great. And I say that, too, because there's a lot of other organizations. Some are 100 years old that have not been headed by someone from our community. So it's great for the American Leadership Forum to set this example. Let's tell folks a little bit about the organization. I'm proud to be an alum, and I got a lot out of it. And I say that because I am jaded so I get invited to be in a lot of leadership organizations, groups, etc. And honestly, sometimes they don't really pierce beyond service level. I feel the ALF does. Uh, tell folks a little bit more about the organization. Yeah, well, you know, ALF is a nonprofit organization, and our mission is to join and strengthen diverse leaders to serve the common good. So it's a year-long fellowship program that intentionally brings leaders from diverse sectors, from uh, diverse ethnicities, genders, and we take them through a year-long process. There's about 25, 26 members in each class, and we help them build their and strengthen their leadership skills to gain clarity on what's important to them as leaders, and then, really importantly, build relationships with each other within the class so that they can go out into the world and do something powerful, something that helps serve the common good. And you mentioned some of those relationships. I do have to give an homage to the legacy of uh, Yolanda Black Navarro because actually ALF had invited me to be a part of it once. And I'm like, I'm good. No, thanks. And then the second time around, um, wonderful Yolanda, she came up to me. She goes, Tony, you're joining the group this year. <laughs> and, you know, when someone who's so iconic and who's a mentor says that, you're like, all right, you better shut up, Tony. <laughs> and, and, and listen, and uh, one, I trusted her. Secondly, she did some fundraising to, to help me, me get on board, started the networking. And in the organization, I'll also add this. We, I think I felt like I met like-minded individuals from many different backgrounds be, who, because Houston is so large, we maybe had crossed paths, maybe had heard about each other, but never commiserated. And that goes even for Latinos. So one quick example is that uh, one dear friend that's come out of it uh, was uh, Juan Padilla. And I say that because he's Latino. We had cross paths but you know he's in the cpa field which is different than the writing literature field so we didn't quite always get to sit down and talk and that was 
a powerful networking and also friendship relationship. And then also Tui Vu, who, who was the founder of Saigon Radio, who I, I feel like we were related <laughs> because yeah. she loves communicating. She loved books. But we happen to be from different cultural backgrounds. I probably would not have met her and connected so profoundly outside of the organization. Um, is that the kind of experience you had, too, in ALF? Very much so. I am a proud senior fellow from class 30, and my class is super connected, and I can say that I am where I am today, and I've been able to do the work that I've done over the last, you know, seven, eight years in the community because of those relationships and because of their support and the access they provided. Of course, I'm breaking the hearts of my other ALF class members, but I must be cruel and calculating and not give them all a shout out. And I will say this, if we were on Zoom right now, instead of the amazing FM broadcast platform, you would see my ALF group picture behind me. So I still carry them with me. But what I, what I love, though, is that, yes, that's the setup. That's the legacy of the group. I feel it comes through on that. Of course, it's not perfect because even the ALF recognizes that uh, we who are activists recognize that we should always be in praxis and self-evaluating. I think a lot changes now with the Latina at the helm because, of course, you have to serve, and I know you will serve everyone, but you also bring our cultural uh, practices and knowledge to the table. How might that add to the legacy of the American Leadership Forum? You know, I think what's top of mind for people is uh, racial equity, um, social justice, racial justice. And I think that because I do represent the Latino community, I do represent people of color, it's important that we have access and we create equitable access to our community through ALF, that we continue to be intentional, that we have a good pipeline of, of leaders that are being considered for ALF and that we are raising the funds so that we can make the program available to people. It is an investment to go through ALF of time and financial resource. A year-long program, and then we also get yes. sequestered away for one week against our will, and we have to do something like climb a mountain or... Or go through that yeah. river nowadays. The best part. <laughs> and yeah. I'm, a, I'm a city boy, so that was quite that was quite <laughs> eye opening. <laughs> like the upward bound for adults. Right. Yeah. <laughs> for first time and last time that I slept outdoors was that camping excursion on uh, <laughs> Mount You'll Adams. You'll never forget that. I won't. I'll, I'm glad I did it. <laughs> Once. Once. Exactly. Exactly. But on the flip side, so we have all this p legacy of networking, leaders that tap into that. But you yourself, I want people to understand what you bring to the table besides cariño for our gente, cariño for the community. Um, mm -hmm. You've also worked with some of the largest real nonprofits, and, and when I say that, I mean like, that's Libre Traficantes and Nuestra Palabra tipping our hats to, uh, you know, Ser Jobs. You were there for 10 yeah. years. That's 
the real deal and you helped them with their multi-million dollar campaign um tell us a little bit about how that skill set transfers over to alf because they're different but i imagine there's still some parallels yeah for sure you know i've worked in the community for 20 years now uh predominantly with immigrants with latinos and helping them access good careers that they can take care of their families they can take care of themselves and but the key piece in terms of what's transferable from that work to this work is building a nonprofit, you know, building an organization, uh, the infrastructure, the systems it needs so that we can grow and, and deepen our impact. Those things are common, whether it was at Sarah Jobs or here at ALM. And there just aren't enough large Latino nonprofits. I used to just focus on the Latino arts nonprofits, which are few, and we don't have too many with large budgets, we can include them all. So um, it's great that you've got that experience. And it's great that you're bringing that to ALF. Again, I have to stress for folks that might tune in on mistake, you're going to serve everybody. And you're going to build this up as an organization that keeps its uh, not not just the the fanfare that it has but takes it beyond because also yourself the show is called latino politics and news because we want people to understand quickly what it means of course there's more to all of us than that so now i want to brag about your educational experience and you are a glo- you are from around the world um t- let's talk about the languages you speak and and that's a nice entryway into uh, your educational trajectory so I am a trilingual. I speak Spanish because that was the first language that we spoke at home. I didn't learn English until I started the school in school, you know, mm. public school in Los Angeles, which is why I ended up having to repeat first grade because I didn't speak English. And mm. so, you know, that's just a little bit about my background. And then in college, I majored in French and studied at the University l'Université de Toulon, which is in the south of France, um, just because it was something that I loved. It wasn't like a big career plan. And um, and then graduated. And, uh, after I graduated, I went into the nonprofit sector with a lot of intentionality because I wanted my work to be part of contributing to society. And then since then, um, after that, I went to grad school in Brisbane, Australia. <laughs> I lived out there for a couple of years, and, and I've been back ever since, after I graduated. That's awesome. So, you know, <laughs> it's just, honestly, it's just been curiosity. Well, and it's also a great commercial for liberal arts, for mm-hmm. pursuing your yes. passion. Uh, yeah. So, so you tell me. So, <laughs> how did French help you <laughs> with your current career? Oh, you know, it helped me in in really strange ways. I think it helped me because it helped <laughs> me connect with people. That uh, when you can speak a language, and even if it's just a few words, especially when you're working with immigrants or you're working with refugees, which I did out of, after college, it, it gives people a sense of place, I think. And so it was always more about how it it helped me serve others versus 
that it was practical in terms of my work. Now, when I worked with refugees from uh, like the Congo, Senegal, that was, you know, people from those countries that were French speaking, it helped me connect for sure. But in general, majoring in French was probably like not the best (laughs) career decision. Well, yeah. well, you're you're, you're speaking. <laughs> most, the, not, the, not, not the most practical decision. Well, you're speaking to someone who has a master of fine arts and creative writing, so I topped you. Okay, so yeah, there you go. <laughs> you beat me on that one. That's why well, I went to business. That's why I got my MBA because I needed a credential that was probably a bit more, um, I guess, practical, applicable to to the work I was doing. Well, and I will say this. Shout out to the liberal arts because I think at the end of the day, the all these different skills from all these different backgrounds, I think it's vital for especially a city like Houston that's still very community oriented. And if we had, you know, seven one hour specials to get into it, we could talk more about all the wonderful pockets that are Houston communities, but is also very much a gateway to this whole hemisphere and I think our leaders have to navigate both. And I would argue there really isn't any clear-cut you know, uh, career path to be on the cutting edge of these different organizations. Because I would say that ALF is this cutting edge sort of organization, even though it still has to follow all the um, you know, old rules of infrastructure, nonprofits, etc., um, at the same time, it has to grow and adapt. And I mean, I think that's what the humanities brings to the table. So, so let's segue into, okay, you got the keys now. <laughs> you got the keys. Mm-hmm. You have all this wonderful experience from different, you know, different sources, different fuentes. So what does the ALF legacy under Nori look like? Hmm. You know, that's a good question. And I can share that, you know, starting now, actually, we're undertaking a large scale listening and visioning tour with our senior fellows, with our funders, with our partners out in the community, because, you know, we want to gain clarity on how we can better serve people, how we can best serve people um, and help activate our leaders in service to the community. It's always about continuing to improve and grow. And so that's really, I think, the key thing I'm focusing on right now as I step into this role. I've been in it now for six months. And so I'm learning a lot. I would hesitate to put a big vision out there. I I will say that what's important to me personally is that we help people shift from this idea that leadership is a noun you know that the leader you know and it's a it's about a person a person with authority or a person with power and we start to think about leadership more as a verb what do i need to do to lead in my community to make a difference to have an impact and you don't have to be a senior fellow to do that and you mentioned the senior fellows so these are the folks that have been through the program which at one point is a year-long process, but then, as you mentioned, it, it, then it can take a life of its own, and you can continue with these networks, and you can kind of step back, lean in. But what I love to hear you say, and I think that is visionary, is that you know ALF, of course, um, 
like one way I look at this is that, of course, there's the protester in me. Right? So at the end of the day, I am an activist. So if someone's straight up oppressing, that's a different argument. When you've got powerful allies that want to help, but they're just, you know, they basically have a different outlook, not through any design. It's, it's just there. That's something else. And I think ALF, as founded by Joseph Jaworski in his book, it, it delineates kind of what you said there is that here's this organization that wants to reimagine Houston and has actively engaged in that, right? So it's actively engaged in right. that. So, mm-hmm. you know, when, when I look at an organization like that, then I feel comfortable saying that group can continue its work without trying these changes. So it sounds like you're quantifying what can literally help community. You've got, you've got experience doing that. You know, you, you've gone back and said, hey, how do I take resources and create real jobs for these folks and deliver them to this community? So you've got that track record. So now you're going to get right. the data to try and figure out, okay, if I'm reading this correctly, how do I take that data to see what the needs are, what the resources are, and then shape uh, programming there? Would that be like in one year, two years, three years, or is that depending on what you find out? So this is really our year for what I call learning and listening, or listening and learning. And uh, based on what we, the feedback we get, what we learn through this listening and visioning tour, it will help us create our strategic plan that I call 22 and beyond. So, you know, what we, what our process this year, it's going to give us the ideas, the feedback, um, the time and place to create some new ideas for our organization, for our community, because ultimately what ALF is really about, it's about activating and galvanizing people in service to the common good. And you and I know there are so many areas in our in our community that need some reimagining and some actual work. Mm-hmm. So leadership is about the work to be done. So we got to get clarity about, about what's the work that we need to be doing right now in our community. I love that. And what I'd like to add for our listeners is that this is this is pro- maybe we're all running in parallel universes because on the art side too, we're taking this year to assess same thing long term and quantify the cultural capital that's there because no one else is doing this. And I guess what I want to emphasize as as people tune in and as they look at this is as they listen to this later. So this is archived at the um, um, University of Houston Digital Archives later when people come back and do the research i love that they're gonna know we were speaking about this and i'm i know for a fact in two or three years we'll have these findings we don't have that our community is so big and as you mentioned real work needs to be done in Mm -hmm. so many different pockets it's it's almost like there's a hundred (laughs) fires yeah but, there are, and and there's a, a lot of people who care about different things, and so mm-hmm. what's important as part of our ALF process is for people to get clarity about what's important to them, and how are, how is how they spend their time, financial resources, other resources, are they is that in alignment with what they really care about? I think you know we we could be. 
we have so many things coming at us, especially as professionals, as busy people. So taking the time to get clarity about your values and what's important to you and then focusing your energy towards that particular thing can be really powerful. That sounds great. And I think also, as you allude to, there's so many different sources of power or interest. I mean, of course, on our side, we're going to have a lot of folks that are in the poetry, literature, visual arts, and that's great, but that's one whole other realm. And then ALF has a wide array of of different folks who are in the fields. I mean, there's the educational side, the the medical side, and all sorts of professionals. So I think it's fascinating then to get that, quantify it, and be able to to make it data that can shape not just your tenure, but ten mm-hmm. years, twenty years. That's right. Down the line. Exciting. Exactly. Because when you work in the community, it belongs to the community. When you work in the nonprofit sector, whatever you create, whatever you do, is ultimately uh, needs to be belong in the community. It needs to be owned in the community. For take for example, my work at Sarah Jobs. You know, it's, it's got a wonderful new facility right on Telephone Road with La Chamba, the cafe. Love it. You know, I love that work. But <laughs> it's not cool mine. Word. You know, it's got to live beyond the people that lead those organizations. And I think you're alluding to another evolutionary issue for nonprofits in that. Uh, and again, this goes back to our discussions um, among artists for community cultural capital right now especially for art nonprofits we're at a stage where because they are not well funded um sustainable or long term they're run by personalities and uh, you know including myself and you know we don't know if you know um if tony diaz goes away will you know what will happen with you know, Nuestra Palabra. Libro Traficantes will never go away. Yo, shout out to Libro Traficante Nation. But, you know, yeah. Nuestra Palabra, the nonprofit, well, what happens there? Um, so, so again, this is, a, exactly. this is a nod to, as you say, infrastructures that live 10 years, 20 yes. years, 100 years. So that is exciting. Right. It's about sustainability and it's about the people who this issue or this uh, resource most impacts having ownership over it and having decision-making over it. Thrilling. Oh, man, I, I cannot mm-hmm. wait. Well, can give out the websites and ways that people can keep track of what's going on with the organization? Yeah. Um, in order to, if people want to learn more about ALF, just come on to Houston. Dot com. So that's A is in Apple, L is in Larry, F is in FrankHouston.com. And uh, learn more about our program, learn more about our process. I will share that to become a senior fellow, you must first be nominated by two of our graduates. So, for example, if someone in your network was interested in being part of ALF, they could reach out to you, Tony, and talk about the process and and uh, you would be the best judge about whether to nominate someone because you are a graduate of our program. And, and happy to be that and happy to, to fill that role for folks, too. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, because ultimately, you know, we as we go through our process of building our careers and the work that we do, how do we 
open doors for others. And that's really the point of ALF, mm -hmm. I think, is reaching out and identifying people who have, who are either doing some of the work in leading in our community or have, could be even more impactful with some development and, and, and growth. And I think that's what ALF is about. And I think that's where we as, as alums, as senior fellows, can be really intentional about, intentional about opening doors for others. Fantastic. Well, please do keep us posted. We've had the pleasure of chatting with the groundbreaking Nori Angel, the new executive director <laughs> of the American Leadership Forum. And we are at your service. We'd love to give updates whenever you want us to. And we look forward to keeping people posted on, the, uh, on your legacy and your tenure. Thank you, Tony, so much. Thanks for the work that in, that you do leading in our community on multiple fronts. Uh, it's welcomed, it's appreciated, and I uh, just want to acknowledge that. So thanks for having me on today. No, thank you, hermana. Appreciate it. Cuídate. And I am going to read an opinion editorial that was published in the Houston Chronicle on January 20th, 2021, titled Mexican American and African American Studies Should Count Towards Graduation in Texas. I am blessed to know my history. My grandfather attended a segregated school. My grandmother remembers a park in San Antonio with a sign that read, no dogs or Mexicans allowed. We have come a long way since then, but there is still so much work to be done. Knowledge of my heritage helped me become a leader and play a role in making Texas a better place. That is why I'm introducing a bill in the Texas legislature to award full credit to high school students for ethnic studies courses and count them towards their graduation requirements. Texas youth deserve to know their history. When my grandparents moved to Houston in 1931, they moved to Second Ward, which we lovingly call Segundo Barrio. There they found a neighborhood with the highest concentration of Latinos, mostly Mexican and Mexican-American. This is where they would later open Morales Funeral Home, the first Latino-owned funeral home in Houston, and then a cemetery. The funeral services they provided to families were filled with compassion and provided everyone during their time of mourning with recognition and respect for their Mexican heritage. In 1950, they opened radio station KLVL, La Voz Latina. For many years, it was the only Spanish language radio station in the Gulf Coast. The radio station was not only a form of entertainment, but it provided news, weather, job listings, and talk shows where the community members could call in and share accomplishments, celebrations, and tragedies. Just imagine being in a foreign country and unable to speak the language. How would you know if a hurricane was coming? How would you find a job? 
Our history was not taught in schools, seen on TV or celebrated. So how could you remember your heritage, tradition or shared history? In the years since, commerce blossomed, families thrived and Segundo Barrio in Houston grew as the Latino population significantly increased. Now there are many Latino funeral homes and Spanish radio stations across the Houston area. Latinos have grown exponentially in our city and our state. Our history contributions, however, are not regularly recognized or celebrated outside of our neighborhoods or the households where families share their customs. I feel fortunate to be part of the history of Segundo Barrio. I see our family's name on our building every day. I see our family's name honored in El Paseo del Segundo Barrio in Guadalupe Plaza Park. I can hear my family's name ring out in the Texas Capitol when I am called as a Texas state representative. I will carry out my family legacy of giving back by championing this ethnic studies bill so that students from our neighborhoods, our cities, and our towns can see their families' contributions in their textbooks, in their curriculum, and in their classrooms. This is the Texas-sized version of history that helped create this great state, and we are poised to share it through high schools from Houston to El Paso. Texans have already united to bring this history forward, and it's time to celebrate its richness to the fullest. Republican and Democratic Texas State Board of Education representatives voted unanimously to approve Mexican-American studies in 2018 and African-American studies in 2019 as electives. These powerful courses are only offered as electives, relegating our history to second class, extra, or something to overlook. That is why, according to the Texas Education Agency, just over 1,400 Texas students were able to take Mexican-American studies and less than 100 were able to take African-American studies in the 2019-2020 school year. I am submitting a bill to change that. My bill would allow African-American studies and Mexican-American studies courses to count towards high school graduation requirements. These courses currently lack this critical designation. This change would encourage school districts to invest in the teachers, staff, and resources to teach these courses long-term. Most importantly, this change will make our history count. It would also inspire scholars and activists to develop the curriculum for approval of further ethnic studies courses, including Asian American and Indigenous American studies. Activists, Scholars and elected officials have included both of these disciplines since advocates began championing this new era of ethnic studies. Study after study confirms that culturally relevant courses bridge the educational divide. The Cabrera study provided this information at the Arizona Supreme Court and was pivotal evidence in overturning the state's ban of Mexican-American studies. Now we must unite so that every district benefits from the richness of these courses. This is especially important in the post 
George Floyd era, where so much attention is focused on dismantling structural discrimination that permeates our lives. Culturally relevant courses go far beyond the classroom in cultivating a generation of leaders who will diffuse cultural conflicts early on. These same thinkers can also build a Texas where all our contributions are recognized, respected, and celebrated. Please join me in delivering a Texas-sized history for all our youth and their families. Diaz reading the essay Latinx versus Community Disorganizers. I named my project Latinx Icons precisely because there's been a pushback against the term Latinx and the younger generation that identifies with it. Let me make something clear. Our community does not need to pick one identity label so that others can more easily Google us. Society must profoundly imagine us. The tragedy is that all the bickering about our identity labels can be addressed by taking just one ethnic studies course. When I teach Mexican literature, I dedicate one week to only two dozen of the possible identity terms. More exist and so many more will exist. The rest of the semester, we profoundly examine the manifestation of those terms generation by generation through the poetry, plays, essays, corridos, and other works our community created to navigate a system that some days ignored us and other days actively tried to erase us. I have an affinity for the term Latinx because it's organic to our community. Our youth coined it. Additionally, all the pushback against the term gives me an insight into the pushback against the youth who first identified with the term Chicano during the Civil Rights Movement. This is dramatized in the play Zoot Suit by Luis Valdez when the main character, Henry Reina, is criticized for and warned against hanging out with, belonging to, or acting like a Chicano. I, like all Mexican-Americans, was not born Chicano. My parents were migrant workers in Texas who then settled in Chicago. They handed down to me rich cultural traditions and values, but I had to discover our role in history on my own through books that crossed my path, through research I had to struggle to find and understand. I chose to be Chicano after immersing myself in our history, art, culture, and understanding the role of our self-empowerment. It is unethical for community organizers to sabotage a person's path to self-empowerment. Community disorganizers revel in the bickering over identity they produce or recycle as clickbait. Our culture is worthy of more 
than just clickbait. Every publication that posts a piece on this term versus that term should also publish 10 pieces about ethnic studies and figures important to our history written by our intellectuals profoundly navigating the terms our identity is built upon. Identity labels are the tip of the pyramid. We must unearth our community's culture and history. That is the role of writers and other artists. We must clear the dust to reinvent language so that we can find ourselves. Happy Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month. Illegal workers are now deemed essential by the federal government. By Alfredo Corchado, the Mexico border correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. El Paso. The other day, armed with a face mask, I was rushing through the aisles of an organic supermarket, sizing up the produce, squeezing the oranges and tomatoes, when a memory hit me. Me. H6, stooping to peek the same fruits and vegetables in California's San Joaquin Valley. I spent the spring weekends and scorching summer suns of my childhood in those fields under the watchful eyes of my parents. Once I was a teenager, I worked alongside them, my brothers and cousins too, essential links in the supply chain that kept America fed but always a step away from derision, detention, and deportation. Today, hundreds of thousands of immigrants from Mexico and Central America are doing that work. By the Department's agriculture's own estimates, about half the country's field hands, more than a million workers, are undocumented. Growers and labor contractors estimate that the real proportion is closer to 75%. Suddenly, in the face of coronavirus pandemic, these illegal workers have been deemed essential by the federal government. Tino, an undocumented worker from Oaxaca, Mexico, is hauling asparagus in the same farm where my family once worked. He picks tomatoes in the summers and melons in the fall. He told me his employers has given him a letter tucked inside his wallet next to a picture of his family, assuring any who asks that he is a critical to the supply chain. The letter was sanctioned by the Department of Homeland Security, the same agency that has spent 17 years trying to deport him. I don't feel this letter will stop La Migra from deporting me, Dino told me, but it makes me feel I may have a chance in this country, even though Americans may change their minds tomorrow. True to form, America still wants it both ways. It wants to be fed, and it wants to demonize undocumented immigrants who make that happen. 
Recently, President Trump tweeted that he would temporarily suspend immigration into the United States, a threat consistent with the hit the immigrant like piñata policy he spearheaded in his 2016 campaign. Less than 24 hours later, the president backed down in the face of business groups fearful of losing access to foreign labor, announcing that he would keep the guest worker program. In the past, the United States has rewarded immigrants, soldiers who fought our wars with a path to citizenship. Today, the fields, along with the meatpacking plants, the delivery trucks, and the grocery store shelves are our front lines and border security cannot be disconnected from food security. It's time to offer all essential workers a path to legalization. It might seem hard to imagine this happening during the build the wall presidency when Congress can barely agree on emergency stimulus measures. Many Republicans no longer support even DACA, the program that protected dreamers who grew up here and that could be revoked by the Supreme Court this week. But the pandemic scrambles are normal politics. We have started talking about essential workers as a category of superheroes, said Andrew Silly, the president of the nonpartisan Migration Policy Institute and author of Vanishing Frontiers. If the pandemic continues for a year or two, he said, we should think in a bold way about how do we deal with essential workers who have put their lives on the line for all of us, but who don't have legal documents. Maybe, he said, they should be in the pipeline for fast-track regularization, like those with DACA are for now. Of course, America has always been a fickle country. I learned that lesson as a crop-picking boy when Mayana Esperanza, who ran the team of farmhands that included my mom, brothers, and my cousins, would yell, Aganciarco, duck. The workers without documents would stop hoeing and scramble, run, if not for their lives, then almost certainly for their livelihoods. We watched as the vans of the Border Patrol came to a screeching hoss, dust settling. The unlucky workers would make a beeline for the nearest ditch or canal. Some would even drop to the ground, hoping for refuge amid the rows of sugar beets, tomatoes, and cotton. Sometimes the agents would give chase. We would always root for the prey. On more than one occasion, agents took my mom and my Aunt Teresa, locking them up in the cages in the back of the van because they didn't have their green cards on them. We would race back home and fetch the cards and make a mad dash to the immigration offices in Fresno, some 60 miles away from our farm camp in Oroloma praying we would make it there before they could be deported. We were desperate to prove they had every right to be out in those desolate fields if they were taking a dream job away from somebody else. One time, Aunt Teresa looked genuinely disappointed at the sight of our smiling faces. She was ticked off she had not been deported. I miss Mexico, she said. 
Sometimes the night after such raids, puzzling thing would take place. A labor contractor or farmer would drive up as we gather for dinner a beef, green chili, and potato caldillo washed down with tortillas. He would compliment us for the hard work we had put in that hard day. And then he would ask, did we know anyone else who might want to come and work alongside of us? He meant more Mexicans. The instructions were simple. Get the word out. Spread the farmer's plea back in our hometowns in Mexico because plenty of rain had fallen that winter. And now it was summer and everything around us was ripe, aching for that human touch. The season looked promising, plenty of crops to pick. Today, not much has changed. The vulnerable, dreamers working in healthcare, hotel maids, dairy and poultry plant workers, waiters, cooks, and busboys in the $900 billion restaurant industry still work to feed their families while feeling disposable, deportable by an ungrateful nation. Dino, the farm worker in the San Joaquin Valley, is worried about the coronavirus. He wonders whether it's best after 17 years of hiding from immigration authorities to return to Oaxaca, where, he says, I'd rather die. But Dino's dreams outweighed his fears. He wants the best for his family, including a son born in the United States who's looking at colleges in California. So he continues in his $13.50 an hour job. He works from, among others, Joe L. Del Bosque of Del Bosque Farms, one of the largest melon, organic melon growers in the country. Mr. Del Bosque employs about 300 people on hundreds of acres, and its fruits and vegetables are sold in just about every organic supermarket across the country, including the place where I now shop in El Paso. Sadly, it's taking a pandemic for Americans to realize that the food in their grocery stores, on their tables, is courtesy of mostly Mexican workers, the majority of them without documents, Mr. Del Bosque told me. They're the most vulnerable of workers. They're not hiding behind the pandemic waiting for a stimulus check. Along with other farmers, he has been pleading with Congress for the past few years to legalize farm workers. If not as part of some comprehensive immigration reform, then as a bill focused on farm workers, because you need these workers today, tomorrow, and for a long time, he told me. With or without COVID, he added, we need to constantly replenish our workforce to ensure food supplies. Some Democratic Lawmakers, including Representative Veronica Escobar of El Paso, are pushing to include legalization in any updated coronavirus package. The hypocrisy within America is that we want the fruits of their undocumented labor, but we want to give them nothing in return, she told me. Even with unemployment projected to be 15% or higher, Mr. Del Bosque told me he doubts he'll ever see a line of job-seeking Americans flocking to his fields. 
the rare who, few who show up at 5.30 a.m. don't come back. He said some give up the backbreaking work before their first lunch break. Del Bosque fears looming labor shortages. That's not because of raids by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement resuming or a wall keeping workers out. He worries about a potential coronavirus outbreaks. Yes, of course he does. But his most immediate concern is farm workers are aging. Their average age is 40. My old school, Oroloma Elementary School, which was once filled with Mexican children, closed down in 2010. The fields are simply running out of Mexicans as fewer men and women migrate every year, either because they're finding better jobs in Mexico or because of demographics. The Mexican birth rate is down from 7.3 children per woman in the 1960s to 2.1 in 2018. Those who do come want higher paying jobs in other industries. The best way to guarantee food security in the future is to legalize the current workers in order to keep them here and to offer a pathway to legalization as the incentive for new agriculture workers to come these people will be drawn not just from Mexico, but increasingly from Central and South America. Del Bosque Farms has been dependent on Mexican workers since Mr. Del Bosque's parents, who are also immigrants from Mexico, started hiring them in the 1950s under the Bracero program, which began during World War II. The program issued some 5 million contracts to Mexicans inviting them to come to the United States as guest workers to help fill labor shortages so Americans could fight overseas. Hundreds of workers who've toiled at Del Bosque Farms over the years have become legal residents, many more citizens, including my father, Juan Pablo. For many years, my father spent the springs and summers working in the United States, but every November, he would hightail it back to his village in Mexico, San Luis de Cordero, Durango, where he played in a band called the Birds, Los Pajaritos, with his five brothers. He didn't trust his American bosses to raise his pay and always worry about the possibility of suddenly being deported so he wouldn't commit to them. The Texans, especially, he thought, were prejudiced against Mexicans. The boys from Mexico work so hard. Texas Rangers argue during one of America's cyclical anti-immigrant periods that the hiring of Mexicans should not be considered a felony. Thus, the Texas Proviso was adopted in 1952, stating that employing unauthorized workers would not constitute harboring or concealing them. This helps explain why Americans call immigrants illegal but not the businesses that hire them. When the Bracero program ended in 1964, amid accusations of mistreatment against Mexicans, my father thought he had enough of plowing rows on a tractor and digging ditches. 
He dreamed of running a grocery store in Mexico, raising his kids out where mountains embraced us. But he was such a hard worker that his boss couldn't fathom the idea of losing him. So he helped my father get a green card for every member of his family, including me. Later, he began working for the Del Bosques. Without legalization, he would have left and probably never come back. As a six-year-old, I cried under the California stars, homesick for Mexico, for my friends, for my cousins. Then one night, my mother, Arlinda, tucked me into bed, and as she caressed my face, she whispered, they're all here now, and she was right. Today, my siblings include a lawyer, an accountant, a truck driver, a delivery manager, a security guard, an educational fundraiser, and a prosthetic specialist. Cousins went off to fight wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, or to help run medical centers and corporations, including Walmart in Arkansas. Others still grind away in the fields of California and meatpacking plants of Colorado, or they work in nursing homes or clean the houses of the rich. Many of us make an annual pilgrimage to our home village in San Luis de Cordero, surrounded by Mexican desert, but we are firmly planted here. Without being thankful for it, we are replenishing In today's complex world, filled with complicated instructions like do this, turn here, don't staple, fold, spindle, tape, or mutilate, one way, etc., etc., why not take a break from all of this? Not near a seashore or relaxing in a tropical paradise? Well, the surf's up over at kpft.org. So mouse on over to kpft.org and pledge and renew online. It's easy, uncomplicated, and will give you that warm and fuzzy feeling of having done something good for yourself and your community. So wax that mouse, hang tin, and surf over to kpft.org and renew your membership and pledge online at kpft.org. Thank you for supporting KPFT Houston, Radio for Peace. Mahalo!